Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'm bad with money, but not as bad as America. The United States of. Heard of it? Guys, we're doing something different on the show this week because honestly, I am, how the kids put it, shook. I have spent the last few weeks reading a book called Dark Money by Jane Mayer, and it is so good and also so bad. It is horrifying. The book is about a small group of billionaires who literally control everything. And I know I sound crazy, but it's true. It's all true. They bought all of it. They paid for all of it. They own our government. And look, we've discussed so much this season on the show that we live in a country that equates wealth and valor and also, you know, power and being a good person. We all just go along with it and we let them turn us into puppets of their own destruction. So today I'm devoting the whole show to what I think is an incredibly important conversation with Jane Mayer about the book. And I'm really excited for you guys to hear it. I mean, you should read the book. Just just please, please go buy Dark Money and read it. And when you're done pulling your hair out and rending your garments, please let's figure out how to take our country back. This book is insane. I've been putting it all over my social media because you have to read it. You just have to. Okay, so here's Jane. And the yelling that I do in this intro, I similarly do in our interview. The book is about a handful of the richest people in the country, real people who have, for the past 40 years, had a plan to try to take over American politics by spending their fortunes, often in secret, so that people don't really recognize how the money's being spent. And that's why it's called Dark Money. And it's about their efforts to pull America far to the right, because they are all pretty much radical right-wing zealots. Can you explain some of the methods that they have for doing this? 
Yeah. Everybody knows that in politics, rich people spend money on candidates. They throw their money behind their candidacies, and that's pretty open. But in addition to doing that, there are a whole lot of other ways that these people in particular have figured out to influence American thinking. And so what they wanted to do was fund public opinion and change public opinion by building up think tanks and advertising that's not recognizably coming from them. Many, many organizations that look like they're grassroots political movements with names that seem kind of anodyne, like Americans for Prosperity, you don't really know whose money is in it. And um, it seems like just it's grown up naturally, sprung up from people on the street. In fact, what the book's about is how a lot of these are front groups and they are actually funded by the same small group of people that really wanted to buy influence in America and is kind of trying to persuade voters without voters really realizing who's behind it. And what do they want? They want less environmental protections so that they can make more money, right? Well, that's a big part of it. Two of the most important people in this group of big funders, and the group is about 400 people and they meet twice a year, but the founders of this kind of little secretive private political party are Charles and David Koch, and they own Coke Industries between the two brothers. They're two of the richest people in the world. Together, they're worth $85 billion. And Coke Industries is a company that makes its money from refining oil and owning coal and gas and pipelines and other kinds of fossil fuel and also chemical companies and uh, a lot of uh, lumber and paper companies. And they're a huge polluter. They are the country's largest producer of toxic waste. Coke Industries is, and they're among its top 10 producers of air pollution, water pollution, and climate pollution. And so the Coke Industries has had a long history of terrible run-ins with the government regulations that try to stop companies from polluting. And among the things that this sort of private political group is doing is trying to water down regulations, get rid of regulations if they can, fight the EPA, and... uh, basically change how the country thinks about environmental issues. They fund a lot of organizations that pretend that, for instance, climate change isn't real. So that's what's so crazy to me. Okay, so first of all, it sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory that 400 billionaires and millionaires are just pulling all the strings and we don't actually live in a democracy, but we don't. Your book has fucked me up. Okay, but we don't. But we don't. And so all of this stuff about like creating doubt in in science and creating doubt in climate change comes to harassing scientists, to threatening scientists. And it's all because if the EPA has tries to save our own lives, they lose money. The things that are described in your book, it's like cartoon villains. It is kind of like cartoon villains. I kind of couldn't believe it myself either. I kept following the money. Um, it took five years to write the book, and and it was hard to follow the money, but I was sort of turning over one rock after another and looking at sort of, well, what's the money going into this organization and that organization? And what I kept finding was they were connected. And in some ways, these guys are pretty proud of it. I mean, and I have a quote from Tim Phillips, who's the head of one of the main 
political front groups that the Kochs fund. And he says, you know, uh, Obama encountered a whole lot of opposition, but if you turned over the rocks, you'd see it was just us. And he said, and, you know, and basically he wanted to take a bow for it. They think they're very clever in doing this. And, um, you know, I'm sure they're not just cartoon characters because nobody really is. Everybody's got many dimensions. And I think the many times the people that I've covered who look like villains, they convince themselves that they're doing the right thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if David Koch and his brother Charles think that, oh, we're just doing what's good for everybody. But meanwhile, it's certainly what's good for them. One of the craziest things in the book is that they are causing all of this pollution that's causing entire towns of low-income people to have cancer. Meanwhile, one of them had cancer. Right. That is one of the worst things in the whole book. And it's this poor town down in Arkansas, which is populated largely by low-income black people. And the whole, there's just like one block on that in that town where polluting stuff was dumped behind these people's houses. And everybody's dying of cancer there. And the people speak about it, and they just can't believe it themselves. Like, they want to know, who are these people? Meanwhile, the Koch brothers donate to Sloan Kettering. Right. And there's like a great quote in the book about how they're, throwing money at problems with the right hand, but that's problems they created with the left hand. I love that quote, too. It's from one of the major philanthropist's sons, maybe one of Warren Buffett's sons, in fact, who said that. Yes, yeah. it is. And so he's seen it up close. So you, I have to say, I mean, I know the Kochs claim that it'll be a better America when there's no government regulations on climate control and other kinds of pollution. But at the end of the day, both of them are graduates from MIT with undergraduate degrees and graduate degrees from MIT. And it seems impossible to me that they don't know that climate change is real. They're just too well educated, and they travel in such sophisticated circles that I have to believe at the end of the day they know they're doing something wrong. This is the thing that is so frustrating. And I wrote down, we are all pawns, we deserve this, <laughs> in, the, in the margins <laughs> of the book, because... The way that it's played where like instead of funding tobacco lobbies, they'll fund something where they'll convince people that it's something called smokers rights and that you have the right to choose to smoke and the government is trying to come into your home and make you not smoke even though it's what's best for you and also the tobacco companies are causing Pollution and also all of this is just putting money into the pockets of people who are richer than you could ever imagine at the expense of killing poor people with cancer. But there's this like twisted way of having convinced the average person that these are things that they have to stand up for. And then the worst part was all this stuff where even you talked about how there was one thing where they convinced people to go against their own interests using fake grassroots campaigns that make it seem like the average person is fighting for their rights when really it's all just like fronted by the Koch brothers in order to get some other legislation through that makes them more money. But then that liberals even start defending it being like, well, you know, you're right. Like they should, what was the, what was that instance? It was something where like even liberals fell for it. You're absolutely right. And these arguments that they cook up are really clever you know, they market test them a lot. They've got kind of 
marketing wizards that they work with, like Frank Luntz, who do all kinds of polling and, and, and sort of twist the language in vis- different ways to see what's going to convince people the best. I think that the, maybe the example you're thinking of is some liberals bought into the idea that there should be no campaign finance rules or limits on how much people can spend, which is, of course, in the interest of these people with so much money, because they had an issue of rights and free speech. And so the American Civil Liberties Union went along with this, and actually it had big fights internally about it, but they bought into it, and they now defend the idea that Citizens United is a good thing because they they, they kind of swallowed this argument that, that corporations have the right to spend, which all I can tell you is that we are a democracy, but if you actually followed what the public thinks on things like spending, 90% of the American public thinks Citizens United was a terrible decision by the Supreme Court and that there should be some limits on how much money the super rich can spend on campaigns that sort of even the playing field out. It's what the country wants, I mean, by overwhelming amounts. But a small minority has really managed to throw its weight around. Can you explain Citizens United for people who don't know? So Citizens United was the big decision that the Supreme Court came down with in 2010 that pretty much legalized what other people think of as almost like bribery. It allowed unlimited spending by corporations and people with huge amounts of money, and also unions if they had the money, which often they don't have. But at any rate, they can spend whatever they want in support of a candidate running for office. There used to be limits on how much people could spend in campaigns. And so when they took off the brakes, what happened was, of course, just a a runaway amount of money has been going into American politics since 2010. And it's warping the whole political scene so that candidates now have to raise so much money to compete that they spend all their time raising money. And of course, they support positions that their funders want, which usually means then they're sort of tilting. It's very hard for them not to tilt towards the people who have all the money. But we have seen some breaks with that. Uh, Bernie Sanders made it on small donations and made a great big sales pitch out of the whole thing, that he was not corrupt and not going to be bought off. And in a weird way, Trump did the same thing. He said, I'm so rich, I'm funding myself. So I'm not corrupt because nobody else owns me but myself. But he did. He's he's not. It's not true. (laughs) It's not. First of all, since then, and one of the things I write about in the, the paperback version of the book is he is so surrounded by the billionaires that fund American politics on the right. The Cokes and all of their people. The Cokes, the DeVosses. Your book was like a horror film. Like literally the end of that chapter where you talk about Obama giving a speech and being like, we're going to make change and everyone's cheering and we're like, we're in a new era. We're, we're like, we're in a democracy. And then the carpet he's standing on is from Coke Industries. I've read Carrie and Carrie was until now the scariest book I've ever read. <laughs> this book is real life and also terrifying. And then the names that would pop up, right? So you start reading and then you realize like the, the last names become recognizable. And then you're like, wait, Betsy DeVos. And then you're just like the person in the house in the horror movie who's like, get out, get out. <laughs> because you realize that he's just surrounded by all of these people that have clearly, they own him. 
all these people who he said he was an outsider and he's surrounded by all the same people, the same billionaires with the same huge interests. And then you look at the positions Trump's taking on things like climate change. It makes no sense. Why would he be saying climate change is a hoax, except that he, again, is is surrounded by these fossil fuel interests, these billionaires who whose bottom line depends on him saying things like that. We're all going to die. Like, like, no, I think we're going to read the book and hopefully, I mean, it's not fair to your generation, but hopefully we're going to be much smarter about it and see where the money is and put some limits on this thing. It's going to be really hard to change American politics till they change the money system, but you can change it. How, how, how? Public pressure is a beautiful thing, and it's people don't think they have much power, but collectively they actually do. The politicians are like weather vanes, and when they feel it, they turn. So if you make a lot of noise about this, I really do think it'll make a difference. There are a lot of local experiments going on now, like in New York City is one jurisdiction, and there are others around the country where there are local governments that are setting limits on how much money can be spent or putting, finding ways to balance out the money from the super big donors. And it, it can be done. Uh, it's been done in American history. There have been waves of corruption and they're always followed by waves of reform. And it is, we're so ripe for a wave of reform now. People just have to understand what's going on, I think. Can they overturn Citizens United? How can we get them to yeah, do that? Yeah, well, I mean, if Hillary, I hate to say it, but if Hillary Clinton had been elected, she promised she would have overturned it by having a Supreme Court justice who would have overturned it. Now, now that Trump's been elected, that's not going to happen with Gorsuch. But there are plenty of other things that can be done. There's legislation that can be done to expose the spending. That's one of the things is one of the most nefarious things about this is that a lot of the spending is secret. It's really hard to follow. And there is a, a, a law that's been proposed called the Disclose Act that would make it visible. So at least voters out there, when you could see whose money is behind an ad and whose money is behind some kind of front group. I'm concerned that people are too dumb because <laughs> your book is out and you talk in the book about even all of these sort of intellectual things like your book and like Michael Mann's Uh, climate change studies and stuff, but it doesn't matter because they just pour their money into these like flashy ads or pour money into having people call and they train people to protest. I feel like so hopeless in the sense that like even if all of us Democrats call and our, our liberals call, it won't be more than the people they can pay to call on their behalf. Or there's like an anti intellectualism where like I could tell everyone to read your book. It's all there in black and white and they don't care. The only thing you can do is try to make a difference, which is kind of why I write, hoping people will care and understand. And there were some other things going on during this 2016 campaign. As I mentioned, you know, Bernie Sanders really got a tremendous amount of traction to the surprise of all of the insiders in Washington. Nobody expected it. I live in Washington and cover politics and he was considered a joke. The fact that he did as well as he did, I think, is an indication of just how many people out there are disgusted at the idea of the corruption of American politics mm-hmm. and want to see some big change. And while I think that Trump is a false prophet of that message, 
because he's not draining the swamp and he's not fighting corruption. In fact, he's bringing more corruption than we've seen in a very long time. I think he was elected on some of the same instincts. So the instinct and the and the feeling is out there if smart people channel it. And I agree, people need to be educated. They need to be aware. A lot of people aren't. And a lot of people throw up their hands and say, oh, they're all corrupt. And that's really not helpful because it's not true. Trump recently signed this executive order called Promoting Free Speech and Religious Liberty, uh, which has significant implications for campaign donations, right? Right. How might this sort of change under this order? It is really bad news. It is. <laughs> You're like, have a, some hope, it's, but it's, this is terrible news. <laughs> no, sorry, what is it? <laughs> but, um, but no, but actually it hasn't gone into effect. Okay. It, it, what he signed is just symbolic. It, it would take legislation. And so in a way it was a fake out to the religious groups because he didn't really deliver. He just said that he was going to do this, but he hasn't done it yet. But what is it? At any rate, the truth is if he did do it, what he says he wants to do is overturn something called the Johnson Rule Amendment, which keeps churches from being able to raise money and give it to political candidates. And the reason is when you give money to your church or your synagogue or whatever, your donation to begin with is private, so your name doesn't go on a list somewhere, mm-hmm. and that money just goes into a big kitty, and it's tax deductible. So you can take that contribution off your taxes. And you're not supposed to be able to take a tax break in order to fund a politician. This is going to enable people to do that and also do it secretly. And the question's going to become, if this ever went into real life, the question's going to become, what's a church? Because anybody can sign up to say, I've got a church, and I'm backing this candidate. And then your church can take secret donations, give tax deductions, and back a politician. So it would be a huge new loophole for dark money. Do the Democrats do anything similar? Well, I mean, they could. I mean, you, in the past, there have been allegations that sometimes the, the old-fashioned churches, they, I think originally it was sort of the black inner city churches would raise money for their candidates or the pulpits, the, the ministers would back a particular candidate. That's illegal, too. But it's not those churches that are pushing to do this. So part of me is like, oh, we're losing because we're not playing the dirty game that they're playing. I feel like as a liberal, I was always like, well, good, we'll triumph over bad and we're good. And there's no way that this could win. But like there, you talk in the book about Obama being a bit naive. On the one side, I feel like the people that buy into like the alt-right or the radical right are dum-dums because they're falling for these things that are against their self-interest. And then on the liberal end of it, we're dum-dums because we're like, good, will win. And that's clearly not the case. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the lessons is you've got to fight smart and that this is a real fight. Yeah. Um, As they say, it's not beanbag. And it's nice to be idealistic. and, And I am idealistic, but I think you also have to realize that there's a real war going on politically out there. It's like an ideological war. Yeah. And it would be nice if it wasn't, but it's actually taking place. You know, I mean, one of the things that I learned from writing about the Cokes was they kind of have a playbook. And I don't really see why liberals couldn't follow their playbook, right. which was to take over government from the state level, um, local politics, state house by state house, build up organizations, convince people door to door, you know, sort of fight at the local level and, and work up. 
and then also make sure that that your story is being told. They do it through think tanks and through you know right wing media operations, but. But you've got to really have a positive message, too. I know, but you're fighting the truth. Like, it's so hard, especially reading Michael Mann's story about climate change. It's like, I'm just telling the truth. Like, it's so hard to be like, you're really going to fight me on the freaking truth? And they kind of enjoy messing him up. I know. That's the thing. Some of these guys just love to fight. They're exhausting. (laughs) No, and it's all this harassment that's on Twitter. It's like the same thing and and what they were doing to him. But... That's why I say it's cartoon villainry because, like, a lot of it seems clearly driven by hatred of poor people or hatred of minorities. But then also it's like they turn around and they contribute to the arts and stuff and museums. So maybe it's not hatred. Are they just self-interested and oblivious? Is it just so much privilege that they can't? Because also they talk about how, like, well, I'm self-made. And it's like you're self-made from money that you inherited and that you're trying to get rid of the inheritance tax. Both of these brothers, along with, they're actually four Koch brothers, and they all inherited several hundred million dollars from their parents. But they liked, you're right, to think of themselves as self-made because they made so much more money from it. Um, I've told by friends of theirs that they live in a bubble. It's a white bubble. One of the people who worked at Koch Industries told me that you'll never find a whiter place. I mean, he's He's a very pale person himself, and he said he was as dark as anyone you're going to find there. I mean, you do see people in the ads. Coke Industries puts a lot of ads up that show people of color. But anyway, it's a, they live in a, in a rarefied bubble of billionaires. So are we even in a democracy, or are we just being run by rich white people? I think we're kind of at a very worrisome tipping point from my standpoint. That's kind of why I wrote this book now, mm-hmm. I think I, yeah, I've been in Washington for 25 years and I've just watched more and more money flowing this way and kind of drowning out Congress. And there are a lot of really good people in politics. There are a lot of good people even in Congress. But it's really hard for them to do the right thing when they need so much money mm-hmm. to do their jobs and get reelected. And so I think we're just at this really, really key sensitive spot where it's time to sort of stand up and change the rules. I mean, you don't want to lose it as a democracy and you don't want to become an oligarchy, you know, a place like like Russia. I feel like that's what we are right now. People on Twitter have been calling it a kleptocracy. Well, that would be if they're stealing. Um, the kleptocracy is a, you know, government by thieves. And it's not looking good here right now, but I actually think <laughs> I, I do think that people are getting an incredible education watching the Trump administration and that there's an energy out there that I haven't seen in a long time. You know, I'm old enough to remember things like the Vietnam War protests mm-hmm. and there was an incredible energy. It woke up a whole generation. It changed the history of the country. I guess I'm idealistic enough to think maybe it'll happen again. But I, yeah. Um, Not you? No, I just am worried because all the stuff in the book about like pushing back, like I'm worried that they just have enough PR people to, if we do revolt, go, oh, this revolution is made up of like degenerates the way they did with Occupy, you know? You know, I I mean, the thing is, think about what they're selling. It's not the easiest sell. Mm -hmm. They're selling pollution. (laughs) They're selling inequality. 
they're s- selling greed. But poor people in certain places buy it. Yeah, but, you know, much of the country is relatively well-educated, mm-hmm. sense, at least commonsensical. And I think numbers suggest that all over the country, if you look, the New York Times ran a map recently, in almost every county of this country, people now believe that climate change is happening, mm-hmm. people are causing it, and that it's something to be concerned about. I think they're going to lose that argument. Yeah. I think the Kochs are fighting a desperate, rearguard, reactionary campaign, and they're going to lose it in the end. The term fake news has basically become a cliche at this point, but before it was Trump's favorite way to evade legitimate criticism, it was a phenomenon explaining the propagation of false information during a presidential campaign. You actually referred to it in your Fresh Air interview as alternative media sphere. Can you talk a bit about how dark money plays a role in like festering these sources of false information? And also this idea of got to hear both sides. Like I was so... A big takeaway that I got from the book was that the press was complicit in allowing people like the Cokes to just write op-eds or, uh, you know, the Times right now hiring an opinion writer who doesn't believe in climate change. And I feel like liberals are like, well, we have to let everyone speak. And it's like, no, you don't. Well, I, I do think there's been a, a real shift in away from think tanks and academic groups and news organizations that had an allegiance to telling what's true, mm-hmm. and they felt that they needed to get the facts to the country, to then them feeling, oh, well, we need to give both sides. And they're just, the truth is there isn't always two sides to everything. Mm-hmm. There are some things like gravity that are real, and and climate change is real. And, you know, there are plenty of other things where you're just being bullied by sort of political ideologues if you sort of buy into this idea that, you know, oh, well, there's another side. And because there's just not always another side, but they've been very good at playing that game. And the media has, I don't know that it's been complicit so much as it's been, it's on the defensive all the time. You know, when you're a reporter, you don't want to be accused of being biased. Your editors yell at you and the readers yell at you. And so it, it takes a certain amount of toughness and kind of courage to say, well, I'm sorry, but what I'm writing is true. It's their money, though, that perpetuated the ideas, right? The doubt? A a lot of the time, yeah. I mean, certainly doubt about climate science. There's hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into promoting the idea that there's doubt about whether climate change is real. And most of that money's come from fossil fuel companies that make money by selling dirty fuel, and they don't want to stop. Finally, just briefly, if it's possible, can you give like a a little rundown of uh, your New Yorker piece about the Mercers? Everyone should read it. (laughs) Well, thanks. It's just about some other very wealthy people who were a family that has been funding Trump. And um, Bob Mercer is a hedge fund megazillionaire. He's not quite a billionaire, I think, yet, but he makes about $135 million a year running what's described as the most lucrative hedge fund in the country, uh, Renaissance Technologies. And he loves gambling. He's very smart at math. And he bet long on Trump and um, has been one of the few really big money people behind Trump. He's also very much funded uh, Steve Bannon, who is the you know ideological advisor to Trump. And he's actually funded Bannon for a few years. And he's funded Breitbart, the news organization that's so far on the alt-right, And interestingly, he's also, this wasn't even in the piece, 
but I've, I've learned this later. Bob Mercer's also been funding, uh, apparently, the college speaking tour of Milo Yiannopoulos. Great. So there is big money behind this alt-right movement that sort of prides itself on being populist. But actually, there are a couple really, really major funders there, and um, Bob Mercer's one of them. And we, as liberals, fall victim to people throwing our own terminology back at us and saying, well, doesn't Milo get the First Amendment? And it's like, no. I doubt anyone listening is actually thinking this, but let's say there are people listening who say, well, the people with the most money should have the most influence. What's the most compelling case to make against this view? Well, we are a democracy where the idea is that every person is politically equal. One man, one vote, one woman, one vote. And the idea is that we're all supposed to have as much say over our government as anyone else. It's not for supposed to be for sale. Okay. I know. For those of you who have been listening this season and you're like, Gabby, we get it. The system is broken. Okay. No, no. This book is why. This book explains everything. There's this inherent skepticism about the ethics of wealth building and the suspicious nature of capitalism that has permeated this podcast since season one, since I grew from a small baby asking financial questions to the tinfoil hat wearing crazy person I've become now. But it's, it's not crazy. It's not crazy because unchecked capitalism is literally killing us. In the book, there are multiple instances of people, low-income or otherwise marginalized people, literally dying because of these multi-billionaires and millionaires. I mean, you guys think that The Hunger Games is some kind of, like, dystopian whatever the fuck? It's not. It's fucking happening. And a lot of stuff that I've seen about activism is, like, when people go... Well, what, what would I have done during Vietnam? What would I have been like in the 60s? What would I have been like during slavery? Guess what? The test is now. What you're doing now is what you would have been like. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who inherit massive fortunes and use them to build oppressive empires of political influence. Ha <laughs> ha! Oh my god, we're all gonna die. We are part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Afim Shapiro. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. You guys know that I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will see you slash scream at you next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. 
Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.